Hello, Twisted listeners. We are so excited today to have Stephen Guerrero with us. He is one of my um, LinkedIn connections for a while now, and I am super excited. He has so much value to bring to our podcast. Um, So I'm going to actually let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about maybe, Stephen, maybe start with like your teaching journey, like what you taught. Mm -hmm. Did you always want to be a teacher? All that good stuff to get us Welcome. Off. So excited to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and I love the pod and it fits <laughs> right in with kind of, uh, yeah, it's exciting because my story fits in with a lot of what you guys talk about. So I'm yeah. excited about that. Um, yeah. So I am from Boston and I grew up in Boston. I went to BU and I majored in international relations and Italian studies. Um, awesome. My name is Italian. That's where that comes from. And I... Um, so uh, majoring in international relations, I thought I was going to go into the foreign service. And oh, um, cool. I actually took the foreign service exam and got all the way to the point of like interviews in Washington, D.C. and like group exercises with other candidates. Like it was like a full weekend of like evaluation. And um, so I was pretty seriously on that track. And then, um, you know, it's the federal government. So it works on, on a long horizon. And so that summer after college, I moved back home. By September, I didn't have a job. My mom was like, you need to need a job job. right now. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, a friend of mine's mom was a special ed liaison in a nearby elementary school. And she said, uh, you have a pulse and a college degree uh, and you're a good guy. (laughs) Like we need teaching assistance so badly, like just come and work here. And the attitude was like, just come work here. And, you know, then you can get a, you know, quote, real job and and move on. And um, so within the first few weeks, I just loved it. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. I worked with um, special needs kids in grades three, four, and five. And, um, you know, being an s- assistant teacher is a great entry point because you get all the joy of working with kids, but none of the kind of headaches of uh, planning and grading and, you know. Paperwork. Um, yes, yes. The day ends when the day ends, which yes. was super nice. And by the end of the year, the um, fourth grade teacher I worked with when I'm attorney leave and the principal said, look, um, it, we need more teachers. And if you want this position for a year, like we can get you a license. And so that's nice. started my journey. Wow. Yeah. And then so I I did a couple years of uh uh, elementary school. And then um, when that teacher came back from maternity leave, I moved to a different district and eventually taught um, sixth grade social studies, oh, which is my jam. Awesome. Like, yeah, history. that is your jam. Yeah. Egypt, Greece, Rome, archaeology. And so I did that for, uh, yeah, like 15, 20 years. Um, <laughs> it was one of those things where like, um, I always wow. told myself, I'll do it as long as I like it. And then when it's not fun anymore, I'll move on. But the only thing I didn't realize was like, the longer you're in, the harder it is to actually make that calculation. Like when you're in your mid twenties and you don't, you know, have too much responsibility, it's easy to be like, well, I'll just switch jobs. But 20 years in, like you have a career, you have a name, you have, you know, um, your status and a lot of your self-identity is wrapped up in this career that you've built. Yes. Um, And and I'd say... mm. That's true for teaching specifically. I think the mm. self-identity and you identify, I think teachers identify as teachers much more than like an accountant identifies as an yeah. accountant. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say um, uh, around the pandemic, like things were really coming to a head. I had, a, I always had one foot in kind of the academic world. So I got a master's in Greek and Roman studies at Brandeis oh, nearby cool. here. Okay. I've been on digs in Greece and Italy. And um, I really struggled, you know, years ago with the decision, should I go for a PhD and go for academia or stay? And the ironic thing is that um, public school teaching actually provided a more sh- uh, secure and better living than anything academia could ever really? offer. And so, wow. yeah, yeah. Cause like it right now, the academic scene is very worse than K-12, like job security. There's none. You're adjunct at like maybe, I don't know, a few thousand dollars per class. That okay. you make. And it's real. And especially in the humanities, it's super hard to break yeah. in. Like um, it's not much of an exaggeration to say like a tenured professor has to like pass away for you to like have a spot opened up. So, um, that's crazy. Yeah. I decided to stay in teaching and then, um, yeah, as we will talk about, probably I decided to leave last year. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about, about that, about, Mm. about the leaving and what did you have a strategy or how did you Mm. go about that? You are so, you have so many, I don't know, 
you have so much education and so many other like options available to you. I'd say different than like, I went to school and I have an elementary education. Mm. My degree was yeah. in education, you know, elementary. Mm. So um, did that, do you think, did that make your transition easier or? Um, you know, it is interesting because because I didn't go to school for, like, I never intended to be a teacher. It was only this happenstance <laughs> that I took this job, you know, and Either. then all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden ha- it's it like, just happens. It's just like, yeah. oh my God, I'm a teacher now. What, what happened? Well, you're further in than you realize. And it's like 20 years later and you're like yep. looking around. What the heck? Yeah. That's, that's yeah, kind of yeah. where I am right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, um, so what a part of the teaching was like, uh, I mean, I think anyone who's been in teaching more than like 10 years or so knows the rhythm, like the first one, two, three years, you're like struggling to survive day to day. And then kind of you plan like week to week. And then, you know, you have your curriculum and, you know, as much as we want to like jazz it up, like do some project based learning, do some interesting stuff. You're also limited by the curriculum. Like there's only so much you can do to make it not similar year on year. And I refer to it um, as like a creeping sameness. So like um, our social studies department did great Greek day where the kids like research Greek heroes or, you know, mythical people or real ancient Greeks. And then we dress up and we have food and a celebration and the kids interview each other in character. And like the first many years of that, it was a blast. Like I dressed up with the kids. It was so fun. And then like, you know, it became like the 16th great Greek day. And it was like, you know, the nurse had to pre-approve every single food item, drink yeah. item and like the table setting. And yeah, it just, I I heard myself echoing, you know, I'll do this as long as it's fun. And then when it's not fun, I'll move on. So that truly started to seep in. I would say like just before the pandemic and I started to do other stuff. I started to um, get involved with an organization here called Teach Plus, which I think has outlets around the country. And they are an organization that advocates for teacher policy leadership without leaving the classroom. So they Mm, like encourage you to and train you to uh, publish op eds, get involved with the political scene. Like I had meetings with um, legislative staff, like, you know, Senator Warren's staff and that kind of thing to talk about issues that I felt important in education. And um, that really got me set on like kind of this, there's a world outside the classroom Mm -hmm. um, in education. Like this isn't the only thing. And so I would say that started the beginning of my kind of horizon of, you know, um, posting more on LinkedIn, getting more involved with outside stuff. At the same time, my husband's building a business. So, um, yeah, it all seemed to come to a head um, last year. Yeah, that um, that explains why you published the most thought provoking, like thought posts, thought articles. They're not articles, they're posts, but like that's where that comes from. I love Mm. that. So you're, what are you doing now? What's your. Right now I'm job searching. <laughs> okay. But I, um, no, I, so when I left teaching, uh, September of last year, I serendipitously got a call from the department chair of classics at Brandeis. And mm. she said, um, we've had somebody win a fellowship. Somebody else is on parental leave and somebody else got this other, you know, position. We desperately need someone to teach, um, you know, under the umbrella of their major. They had a class called Topics in Greek and Roman History. And like, how perfect for you. Oh, my gosh. Yes, exactly. And actually, I had presented to the department, to the graduate students. Um, I have always been a strong advocate that we need good ancient history folks in social studies. So like, um, mm-hmm. you know, a ancient. pipeline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a pipeline from like academia to K-12. Like we shouldn't have, you know, 20-year-old information in our textbooks or teach students, you know, right. slaves built the pyramids when they didn't. And I think um, part of that, and also promoting that K-12 was a more secure and better paying mm-hmm. position than academia. And so she just reached out to me. She said, uh, basically, you can design the class. Um, you wow. can say what the topics are, whatever you want, readings, assignments, totally up to you. And uh, we need it by like next week. So <laughs> you can do whatever it. you want to really fast. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Which is so great because I did a class. It was called the Ancient Peoples of Italy. It was about Romans and Etruscans and uh, mm. ancient Greeks in Southern Italy. Designed it. It was great. It was a wonderful kind of like off ramp because it was education, but mm -hmm. it was a single class. And so that was really nice. And it was also like um, I could go deep in the content area where I couldn't so much with the sixth grade curriculum. And right. yeah, so that was really nice. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a blast. I just remember because we have something similar with the Italian um, going to Italy and mm. we talk about the, we went to the Etruscan ruins and they're like, they never talk about them. <laughs> so yes. Like, yes. You know, we just, I remember being so fascinated by that whole, all of it. Um, God, what mm. a great opportunity to teach that. It's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was perfectly timed and also the subject matter was perfect. And then that wrapped up in December and a couple founders from a company called Litmus Learn. These mm -hmm. are guys, uh, one was out of the Bay Area and one's in Seattle. Um, and they grew up in India and they were interested in creating this cohesive blended learning platform, um, mainly in India, um, because they are a pretty um, early stage in terms of their digitization of the classroom. And so okay. uh, rather than have many products, just have this one platform. And so... They didn't have any uh, educational or classroom experience, so they brought me on as the chief learning oh. officer um, to uh, promote, talk about pedagogy, you know, oh, make wow. connections and kind of refine the product from a teacher perspective. And so that's what I've been doing for uh, the past year or so. Okay. Mm. So is that still continuing or does that have like an expiration date or? Yeah. So um, <laughs> I told them when I joined you know, I have probably about a year of runway in terms of financial support um, because they are pre-funded. So they are um, currently looking for a seed round of funding. And okay. in the startup world, like you can never predict anything. And oh, so yeah. they are at a point where, um, you know, they're starting to get some traction in India and they're they're starting to have a couple schools here in the U.S. But um, the the financial piece just wasn't there yet. And yeah, so I needed to make sense. sure, yeah, Angel and I have the kind of support that we need for our life, <laughs> for our bills. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Passion is not enough. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. passion for what you're doing is not enough. You have to have actual, you know, money to. Yeah. yeah. The bills keep coming no matter what, you know, yes, you're building stop. or. Yeah. No and also what um, good you're doing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Yeah. The mortgage company is not relenting every, you know, 12th of the month, but also, um, uh, I liked it. It was, a. am so grateful to those guys because they caught me at a time where I was really interested and curious about kind of the startup world, the tech world, just the private sector in general, having been a public school teacher, my whole career, um, union leader and, um, yeah. that kind of thing. So I got a lot of education from being in that role, um, I got to apply a lot of the things that I learned with Angel. So my husband has a flower shop in Boston, which he also yes. opened right before the pandemic. He left a bank job that he hated and opened this amazing flower shop. And I took at the same time I was upskilling, which is like a LinkedIn kind of. Yeah, it is a I know what that means only because of Jen. I would never have known what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> I could have figured um, it out, but you know. Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorites, actually, and I would recommend to anyone thinking about this kind of thing is HubSpot Academy has, uh, you know, HubSpot's right here in Cambridge. They're a massive marketing firm, and they have this series of certificates, totally free and open. And it's like videos and activities, and you get a certification at the end. But even aside from that, I learned so much. Like I'm talking to Angel about like, let's do market segmentation. Let's do email AB testing on like, you know, <laughs> actually right now the holidays are coming up. So we're doing an AB test on email marketing. So, oh. um, yeah. To and so do you know what that means, Jen? I, I do know what that means. Okay, yeah. Course, yeah. <laughs> I'll just be the kid in class smiling and nodding. Cause I have no idea what that means. So yeah, HubSpot Academy email marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So Tell, hmm. So do you want to shout out the name of the flower shop in case we have any Boston listeners? Who... Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's called the Centerpiece Flower Shop. Okay. And nice. if you want to live vicariously, even if you're not in Boston, our Instagram, because Angel is a photographer too. So oh, how be what yeah. great. What a great marriage of yeah. skills. Yeah, exactly. And he's such a good example of like blending all your skills into this amazing thing and so uh yeah, at the centerpiece flower shop on Instagram is where you can I'm gonna see go... some of his work. 
I'm going to go follow, right? <laughs> you got best of Boston last year in Boston Magazine. So that was super. Which exciting. I think is huge. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just in two so years. Cool. Mm. Yeah, that's impressive. And I'm sure it doesn't hurt that he has you doing things like A-B testing for him, you know? Yes, yeah. that, yeah. And also, um, even just uh, on the ground, I'm doing deliveries. So, you know, working from home for a ed tech startup that is partially in India, <laughs> My hours were all over the place, so I can go at like, you know, 1 p.m. and deliver flowers around the greater Boston area and then come back and get some work done. That's, and, uh, that's sounds like a wonderful job. So yeah. your, last, your last year of teaching, and I always ask this question because mm. we're under the, you know, we always tell people, quit before you're pissed off. Quit yes. before you're angry. And mm. we can really uh, get to, there's usually like a, a last straw, like, um mm. I think I have mine. I've had mine a couple of times, but not to the last, last straw. So <laughs> was there something that was just a clicking in your mind? Like there's more for me out there or is it just, was it a gradual release of your connection to education? <laughs> um, yes to both. First of all, I love that you say that because that's super important. Not only because of like, you don't want to get to the point where you burn bridges on the way out. Like, you know, that mm -hmm. meme of, um, I don't know, is it, um, <laughs> Uh, Angela Bassett or something where the car is burning behind her and she's walking forward to camera. Um, and so like, you don't want to burn it all down on the way out. And, and that's not good for your own mental health and well-being too. So right. totally agree with that. I would say there were two main things. Um, one was during the pandemic, watching Angel build his business and feeling like, um, uh, I had put so much into this school system and I was feeling like, and a lot of teachers have felt, I think out of the past 10 years, maybe five years, at, at, at especially the job is getting a lot harder. The money has kind of plateaued, especially <laughs> when you're in and you hit the end of the salary schedule, Yeah, you get to the last step and then you're just banking on like one and a half percent cost of living increases in a time of like 6% inflation. And then, um, the district was getting more and more kind of uh, standardized. Uh, there's a lot of data-driven oh, stuff that came out of yes. No Child Left Behind. Yeah. So I was, and then, like I said, the creeping sameness that I was feeling of the year on year. Um, but I would say like there was one incident where, um, so in Boston, it gets very dark here in the winter. Yeah. And um, I remember, so my my school started first in the district. Kids came in at quarter past seven. So oh, I had to be at the school yeah. at like 6.30 in the morning, yep. which meant like 5 a.m. wake up call. And, um, you know, as a teacher also, like it's really hard to turn your brain off and get good sleep when you're trying to like mm -hmm. run through your whole day in your head. And so I just remember waking up so like being so exhausted in a way a good night's sleep wouldn't fix and just being so, so tired. And there was one morning where I was coming down the stairs in the pitch dark. And just like missed a step or whatever and like slid down the rest of the stairs on my oh. butt. And like, I didn't get hurt or anything, but uh, I did grab the blinds on the window and pull them down. My <laughs> husband thought I was dead. He thought I was at the bottom of the stairs, like, <laughs> like oh, a dateline. No. <laughs> but I just remember thinking like, I, this is unsustainable. Like I can't be falling down my stairs because I'm so tired. And so okay. that is one incident that for sure sticks in my head as in like, yeah. It's the mental is the physical and like you, when your job gets to a point where you're just not living a healthy life, then it's really time to re-examine. You said yeah. your phrase creeping sameness. Yeah. I really, yeah. really like that because, you know, it, do, it does creep up on you and you don't notice it until it's just like, why do I even remember what I did this morning? And <laughs> yes. yes, yes, yes. And um, when you're a new teacher or like, maybe let's call it like sophomore part of your career. Like mm -hmm. after you get past the hump of the first couple of years, if you're teaching the same district and the same subject, um, you kind of have your lessons. Like, sure, you mix things up a little bit each year, but the more you do it, the more it's kind of planned for you based on what you did last year. And mm -hmm. at first that's amazing. It's like, I save all, I'm not in the classroom till 7 PM, like driving right. home in the dark. And then after like, you know, a few years of that, you feel like, you know, here we go. Again. Like, here we go mm -hmm. again, making Egyptian cartouches. Here we go again with <laughs> Great Greek Day, you know. Yeah. And it, it the fun gets sucked out of it and the convenience turns into that creeping sameness that actually flips 
the the script and, and makes you feel not glad that you had this stuff already planned, but mm-hmm. kind of, uh, yeah, on autopilot. And that doesn't feel good. Yeah, I tried to combat that by like, literally, if I look back on my career, I never ta- I taught elementary school and I mm. never taught the same grade for more than three years in a row. I would mm. switch like I mm. I could not do that same thing again. I needed to change and I might go back to my favorite grade, mm-hmm. but I needed time away. Mm-hmm. So I that's how I tried to combat it. But it, it you know, it's just delaying the inevitable, basically. All right. So you are um, you have posted a couple of things lately that really resonated that I wanted to know more about. Sure. Um, one was that you were talking about a, a school district, a school, I'm not sure which now. Um, the district. A district that did not does not have enough subs and that there are a certain number of teachers who are out like every day yep. and how it's being handled. And I'd love for you to speak to us about that a little bit. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I I love this. I don't love, I, I think this story is very illustrative of a lot of trends, problematic trends in education kind of coming together. And this is a super concrete way to see the effect on both kids and the district. And so we have a local school district here that um, the Boston Globe, the major newspaper here, wrote up a story that, so any district knows subs are always an issue. There's never enough. Mm-hmm. And the ones that you do have, um, you know, they have a really challenging job. They are just plopped into a classroom where kids may or may not run roughshod over them. <laughs> you know, they, they feel like it's a holiday and the poor subs are only, you know, doing what you leave for them, which I'm sure from their perspective is a variety of qualities and detailed stuff. Um, they get paid very little pay. So yeah. there's a very small amount of people that really, really want to do it. And so um, in this district, um, they have a shortage uh, of subs. And what they've been doing is, and I think other districts do this too, they kind of warehouse the kids. So now that we have um, kind of digital learning, you know, on steroids from the pandemic, Mm -hmm. a lot of teachers feel like I posted on Google Classroom, the kids have their assignments, all they need is kind of a bed check. And so they'll send all the kids to the cafeteria or the library or the Uh. auditorium thinking they have their assignments, they can be autonomously doing their assignments, and we don't need like each classroom covered, which will save us from having to, you know, pull subs or one of the worst things that they do is pull teaching assistants. So Uh, that risks. Yeah. And we see that, especially at the elementary level, you know, the teacher's out, can you just cover the class? And it's like those teaching assistants are there because there's a legally mandated ed plan that they need to be there. And when you're pulling them for substituting, like mm-hmm. you really risk being out of compliance. And so we know it happens. It's a perennial problem. And also um, it's it's because of a desperation of not having enough subs. At the same time, more teachers are calling in sick. I yeah, think, right. yeah, more teachers are calling out. And I think, um, I mean, you might also remember this, like before the pandemic, when people said, oh, I'm taking a mental health day, like it was kind of a joke, like you were using a sick day out of like your 300 sick days um, to like just kind of do shopping or like go to the dentist or, you know, whatever. And kind of that idea of like a mental health day is a day you kind of like take to yourself and it's a luxury. I think since the pandemic, especially a mental health day actually is related to mental health. It really is a mental health day. And Something we've talked about a lot is like there'll there'll be this like this attitude from admin like take mm-hmm. care of yourselves and yep. we really want you to be there. And and then when things hit the fan, yep, you know you need to get a sub, you need to get sub yeah. plans. And and I had put something. This was about a year ago. Um, the stories I got on a TikTok video about what happens when you take a sick day mm-hmm. and. The horrible stories across the board, across the nation mm-hmm. about what happens when you actually do take a sub day and what, what does that entail with a sub plan and how detailed do you need to be so that people mm-hmm. aren't hurting themselves in the classroom? So yeah. it's, it's yeah. not, the, it's not the, they don't mean what they're saying. And if yeah. they do, they, they can't follow through with it because 
Friday seems like a, you know, it's, I think it's typically always been like an optional day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the teachers are exhausted. That's why so many schools are going to four day weeks now. Yeah, exactly. And also, um, from their perspective, it's like you are telling people take care of yourself, like the whole oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on others. Yes. But at the same time, they're like, also, we can't have more than like three people doing this at the same time. So like, you know, they, they look at it as, as a systemic problem where that you have like 10, 15% of teachers absent on any given day. Like that's an issue, like a district issue. That's not an individual teacher taking off issue anymore. And so yeah, they're getting to these kind of extreme um, solutions. And of course, like if you have a middle school or a high school where you're sending all the absent I mean, kids whose teachers are out into an auditorium, that's not a recipe for just putting (laughs) one adult to watch what they're doing and then everybody will do the work they're supposed to do. Like, we know that's not going to happen. Like, they're going to be wild. They're going to be hanging out with their friends and, you know, who can blame them? Mm -hmm. But um, it's it's an unsustainable um, pressure. And I think it also is forcing the districts to recognize, like, they need to examine not how can we get more subs, but like, why are more teachers out? Like, why do we need the more subs? And mm-hmm. I think that's a much more expensive and complex solution. And I don't think they are eager to kind of take it head on in this kind of thing. They they kind of put band-aids on to get through the next week. Right. And there's a whole, there's a huge difference. If I want to be a sub because maybe I'm considering being an educator and that's all mm-hmm. I'm going to get my foot in the door. In my mind, I'm going into sub for ninth grade English or right. not. <laughs> hey, there's a hundred kids in the, yeah, in exactly. the cafeteria <laughs> right now. And you're in charge of that. Like, that's not what yes. I signed up for. Yes. And they all have devices. Yeah. 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 Uh, right. I mean, there's the devices. That sounds like hell, honestly. Yeah. 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 And it just like, I. All I can think of is like the noise level too must be just also, I don't know if you also experience this, like some of our subs are new, you know, whether they're graduate students or teaching, but most of our subs were recently retired teachers. Yeah. So they're like, you know, they're collecting their pension, but they're looking at make a few extra bucks and have flexible schedules. Oh, I can cover some classes in the morning, maybe twice a week. And now the teachers who are retiring are like, goodbye, like I, yeah. I'm not coming back. And I think that's another issue that's happening. I will. Yeah. Ne- I mean, the day I step out, I yeah. I can guarantee you I'm not going to be a sub because yeah. there's no yeah. way. No way. I would never sub or or yeah. drive a bus. I mean, I feel like they're oh, both no. the same. No, we know that I would never drive a bus. I can barely oh, drive my bus. Mini Cooper. So, <laughs> um, oh. So uh, yeah, we, and then the globe, um, just to like bring things full circle, the globe's findings were that, of course, predictably, the kids who are, you know, having this situation of, you know, their teachers out and they're sent to like a central holding area, um, their education quality is suffering, they're missing out, they're getting gaps in their, uh, in their learning, because when they actually do go to the, you know, one person monitored, you know, room of 100 kids, uh, they're not actually learning. And this is a serious issue um, on top of a serious issue. It is. Do you have any thoughts on solutions? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the first thing, and I, when I was a union leader in Needham, one of the, um, we had, I, I was on the contract bargaining team for three different cycles. And one of the things that kept coming up, especially in one cycle, uh, with the lack of subs and especially the pulling of teaching assistance, um, was sub pay was a big one. So we had to look at all our surrounding districts and we were mm-hmm. paying, you know, towards the middle bottom of what other districts were paying. So like, if I'm going to sub and I can sub anywhere I want, why would I go to a district that's going to pay me whatever it is, $90 a day instead of a place that's going to pay me $120 a day. And so um, raising sub pay, but I think the ultimate issue is not the staffing levels of the sub pool. It's the staffing levels of the teaching staff and the teaching assistant staff. So Mm -hmm. if you have enough teachers um, that you're not working with like a bare bones kind of skeleton crew, then that doesn't become as serious an issue. Um, And then of course, back to that thing of, you know, teacher burnout, teacher mental health, find out why more teachers are taking days off and how can we kind of address that in a systemic way and not kind of 
waiting. Not for, a punitive way too. Not a punitive way and not waiting for teachers to be in crisis for people to really need to go on a leave or to, uh, you know, have a, a, a while off or, you know, suffer a health consequence um, and, and deal with that as if it were like an isolated incident. Instead, we need mm-hmm. systemic solutions. So I don't know, maybe I'm mistaken, but I feel like I also read in that post that there's just that there are positions that are not filled at the mm-hmm. school as well. And so yep. then that's adding into even if you can get the subs, you have 10 to 15 positions at the high school that are don't have a regular teacher anyway. Yeah, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Also, so that we have the teacher shortage, which is fueled by a crisis of burnout. So the, the districts are having a harder time attracting and especially so. Before the pandemic, the issue was more about attracting new teachers because we know like there's huge attrition between years like yes. one and three. But since the pandemic, and I'm we are like living examples of the fact that it's now a crisis of retention. So you can attract new teachers, but can you keep them and can you keep your more experienced teachers on staff as well? And so that double crisis, we still have high turnover and in the early years of teaching. And now we have a crisis of burnout in the like mid to later career teachers. And all of that is kind of fueling in. So we're not so much talking about subs on like a day to day, like per diem subs that just pop mm-hmm. in for a day. We're talking about long term subs. You know, teacher goes on uh, parental leave and we need subs to come in for a few weeks or we have a patchwork of people to fill in for a position that's uh, not filled by a regular teacher. So um, these are kind of. Uh, yeah, the, the the candle is burning on both ends. The beginning teachers don't want to or or prospective candidates, you know, aren't excited to get into teaching as much. And there's high turnover. And then the later career teachers like us are deciding, I don't really want to be in this career till the end of my uh, working year life. Right. Yeah. 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 Yes. I mean, and that's yeah. what it is. I work with um, I'm an instructional coach in high school. And so I do work a lot. M- much of my job is working with new teachers mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's hard because they're dealing with things that I haven't I didn't teach through the pandemic. So mm-hmm. I, I don't have that experience. So I don't pretend to either. But some of the things that we're trying to do to keep them, we've got mentors, we're training our mentors, we're trying to make sure that, you know, again, take something off the plate. And that as soon as something's taken off, something else is back on the plate with yep. the teachers. Um, the the deadlines, th- there's a lot of contradictory, um, I guess, mandates, mm-hmm. you know, teach by the standards, mastery over time, but do you have this many grades in? So it's kind of yes, one of those yes. things where teachers are coming to me like, what is what what is the important thing? And I'm like, what is the non-negotiables for your day? Like, that's right. kind of where I go with some teachers. And at the end of the week, what do you need to have done? Sometimes, you know, it's it's the things that they don't teach, basically classroom management, how to deal with parents, how to yeah. how to have kids in your classroom with accommodations. Mm-hmm. They don't have those classes. And so we're having all kinds of issues with I don't I've got this kid with these accommodations. I don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. So I think just that full on support with those teachers and giving the, giving them grace and saying, hey, you you don't need to be perfect. And mm-hmm. the veteran teachers Sometimes when they get around the first year teachers, we're like, eh, maybe you need to get away because we're a little <laughs> jaded, a little bit jaded. And I don't mm-hmm, want to kill mm-hmm. Mary Poppin energy ever. Yep. But I, it, it is hard because every year I'm like, and I was telling Jen, I'm like, oh, this is hard. I've got to be really on to the education scene and be, very positive. But sometimes for me, it's just like, dude, mm. I, you're, you're in real early. You can get out and do something else real quick. I don't say yeah. that, but I do think it all the time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I served on our district's kind of um, mentorship program. And it was a similar kind of thing. I think, yeah, definitely since the pandemic, it's gotten much harder. We've always known, I mean, even from my first years of teaching, that teaching, you know, doing a, a teacher prep program is um, not going to prepare you to be in the classroom. Like no matter what it is, no, the right. only thing that prepares you is actually getting in the classroom and having the space to make mistakes and course correct and having great mentors telling you, you know, the best advice and and what you're doing right and what you could do better in a way that's non-evaluative and non-judgmental. Yes. And I think um, that that is a big deal. One of the um, 
maybe positives that we have with a new generation of teachers. And, you know, I started teaching my first year was 2001, like two weeks into the school year. That was, was my first year too. Yeah. yeah. 2000, and, um, 2001. Yep. And you probably remember like at that time, technology was like one computer at the back <laughs> of the room that kids could earn time to play on for 15 minutes. Um, maybe we had the, you know, TV strapped to the cart wheeled in, but, <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes. I had a teacher who used to show like an old eight millimeter reel about atoms and like, <laughs> so, um, the, the overhead with That's the plastic sheets and the little light bulb. <laughs> yeah. And you um, had to, you had to like, um, go ahead and sign up for them weeks in advance. Yes. The, <laughs> the lab. Yeah. The lab, and, which is the one. <laughs> Yeah. And there was always that person who hogged the Mac lab. Um, oh and, God. and Mem- you know, memories. we watched the whole digital transformation right yeah. under our noses. And, um, you know, we didn't grow up with that kind of onlineness. And I oh. think at least for new teachers, they do have a perspective of kind of navigating this new online world that our kids are coming from. But I think um, for me, especially, that was kind of one of the most exhausting things. And ironically, like after teaching, going into ed tech, but I think (laughs) (laughs) it's more like um, the kids felt different. The kids I had in 2002 had a different vibe than the kids I had in 2022. And so I think, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of it. Well, I know we have a lot of like the the apathetic piece of it too. And Mm -hmm. I mean, we won't go into the whole grading and um, the grading assessment meaning like retakes and things like that where the kids yep. are like ah, i can just take a retake and it's fine <laughs> or systems where the lowest grade you can put in the grade book is a 50 like for mm. me i mean it's those are some hard hard things to do but some districts where i am in georgia do go through that and it's like mm-hmm. well the lowest i can get is a 50 then i'll just do really well on this assessment and so i think it goes the apathy goes along with the teacher apathy or mm-hmm. burnout and then it's just cyclical like mm-hmm. um kids are on their phones but then i have to ask what is the teacher doing it's death by google slides right yeah yeah like in every yeah. single classroom mm-hmm. not every single we've got a lot of great teachers who do a lot of great things but if you have seven classes and four out of those seven classes is lecture with a powerpoint yep. i'd get on my phone and skip too yeah yeah <laughs> and, yeah and also that's a, a function of standardization too like we're taking less and less freedom away from teachers to kind of teach in the way that is best yes. for their kids and telling them i mean you it's probably had like I've had like math programs where it's like, say oh, yeah. to kids, that's <laughs> why kids will then say this and you should respond this way. Like yep. that scripted. And so um, I think, yeah, you have more and the teachers. So when I first started teaching the teachers who were like retiring, I think were the last generation of teachers who could do like three weeks on like, you know, building sugar cube pyramids just because it was fun. And I think, you know, the kids learned a lot, but also there was tremendous amount of um, freedom and uh, in terms of pedagogy. That also has a downside. Like we have to make sure that kids get a quality education and how to kind of capture those teachers who aren't quite getting it. But I think um, it, you know, it's a pendulum and, Mm -hmm. and I think more teachers are feeling more restricted. And I think that takes some of the joy away. And the kids, I worked in um, a suburban district where most of the students were from affluent or middle-class families. And um, for me, it was more like the overscheduling. So, you know, everybody's on a travel team. Like it reminds yeah. me of the old um, Prairie Home Companion, like all the kids are above average. And um, it, it it was like they have activities and robotics. It felt like the difference that you were able to make as a teacher had shrunk as part of the kids' lives substantially. And so it felt like you were making much less of a difference with a lot more work to do. Yeah. It. Oh, that's a good way to put it. That yeah. is. And the standard, the scriptedness is mm. was one of my last draws. Mm-hmm. Like that was like, I just, I don't want to do this. This isn't. I'm a good teacher because I am creative, not Mm -hmm. because I can follow a script. All right. So talk to us about, so where I'm at, teachers cannot strike, like can't Mm -hmm. strike. Can they strike where you're at, Kim? I don't even know. We don't have a union. See, so talk to us about what's happening in Massachusetts with striking and Mm. et cetera. Because it's heated up. So the first thing to know is that striking is illegal by public workers in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, 
Massachusetts also, like New England, but I would say especially of even the New England states, is super decentralized in the way that school districts are run. So, okay. you know, remember we had the red for ed kind of movement. What was that, like 2016, 17? Um, in West Virginia, we had massive statewide strikes and yeah. a couple of other states. And so that was kind of a function of states where they had uh, state level unionization. Um, but here in Massachusetts, um, our state mass teachers association is actually working for the locals. And so the local okay. union associations are really where a lot of the power is held. And so um, locals are for a long time have made calculations that they could get kind of um, what they needed out of the contract through tough bargaining and community kind of education. Once in a while, um, they would have to go through a referendum process. So okay. in Massachusetts in the 80s, we passed something called Prop Two and a Half, which I think there's something similar in California. I forget what the number is, but it limits how much property taxes can go up two and a half percent at the most. And okay. if a school district needs more money than that, you need a direct yes or no ballot referendum in that town. Okay. And in some wealthier towns, they would say yes, and the t- schools yeah. would get the money they needed. And right. in poorer districts, they would just say no. And you know, the districts yeah. would be without that money. Um, and so uh that puts a lot of both political power and bargaining power in the local districts. But because it is illegal, we haven't had a strike um in Massachusetts. I think we went from like 2012 to 2019 with zero okay. strikes. Um, and very few even before that. Um, but something happened around 2019. We had a district um, actually right near me um, where they had a strike because they had been, you know, a, a year and a half, something like that, without a contract. Mm. And wow. having, yeah, it, it, I mean, we it's not uncommon for that to be the case. actually. Okay. And and also, um, you know, there were a lot of issues a lot of the burnout issues that we've talked about kind of crept into district-wide programming in terms of, you know, teachers were getting upset at just how much kind of quantitative data they had to go through oh, and yeah. hoops. And it, it yeah. was just a lot, you know, the job was getting harder and kind of the compensation was plateaued. And so, right. um, yeah, so one district decided to strike. They settled fairly quickly. Um, and so I think since then, since 2019, we've had I would say off the top of my head, almost a dozen districts strike um, in the last few years. And I think it's accelerating. So it's getting um, worse. We saw a lot of that during the pandemic. So schools during the pandemic became the center of the community during shutdown. Like people were going there for food, for Wi-Fi, going to collect devices so they could have access. Right. Um, It's a lot of times the organization that, um, promote social connections among kids and parents. And so people with that new realization of how important schools are, it gave the the, the locals more leverage to ask mm-hmm. for things and, and to say, if we don't get a fair contract, we're going to walk off. Um, and having served on, you know, as the vice president of our local union and also on multiple bargaining teams, the thing about striking is, number one, it's a last resort. But mm-hmm. It's illegal. The district... Um, can go to the Department of Labor and the actual local union can be fined. And it hasn't happened yet, but oh. um, the leaders can be jailed. Um, I was going to oh, ask wow. what the repercussions were because it mm-hmm. is illegal. Yeah. And only once has it happened that a district's been fined a substantial amount of money. Um, and uh, that's an interesting case, too. But um, yeah, it's on the books that the leaders can be put in jail, um, although it would be politically very toxic for <laughs> a district to do that. But um you would think the money they were they were giving them as fines could you know they could put yeah. the money towards something else, which is the yes. point of the strike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the fines have to be paid out of the um, union dues, so it's yeah. not related to what the district is paying. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it would either be increased union dues or the state um, union would have to kind of kick in right. some aid, but. Um, so uh, striking is the last resort. Usually there are steps leading up to it. Like this, you know, one of the last steps is uh, work to rule, which is one of my favorites because 
Work to rule means the teachers are going to say, okay, we're only going to do exactly what the contract says it's paying for us. We're going to show up at the bell time that is in the contract. We're going to leave exactly at the bell time. We're not going to be accessible by email. We're not going to grade after school. We're not going to do after school activities. Um, And basically it shows the district two things. One, we're willing to go to the mat for a fair contract. But the other thing is it makes both the community and the district realize you're getting so much from us beyond what you're paying us for. We know that we accept it in our federal tax code. It has a tax break, um, like a a credit, especially for teachers, basically acknowledging that teachers are buying stuff with their own money. They're putting in unpaid labor. They're, you know, working on weekends and in the evenings. And so um, they're showing up early, you know, they're going at the end of the summer to set up their classrooms (laughs) Um, so work to rule takes all that away. And usually that is a pretty good indicator for districts that teachers are serious and also shows the community like, wow, we're getting a lot from for what we're paying our teachers. Um, and so usually uh, that settles things when it gets to a strike. I mean, the number one thing to know about a strike, it only happens if the district's teachers feel like the community is on their side or they can get the right because a, yeah. dist- a, a strike is designed to you know you you take away the child care aspect of of schools which we saw during the pandemic was extremely um jarring for a lot of parents um and also you take away the learning and that kind of thing but i think um really the immediate impact has parents attention undivided attention, attention. Yeah, when they have to make plans because their kids are home. And so the goal is for those parents to organize with those teachers to put pressure on the policymakers. And in all the cases where that's happened here in Massachusetts, it's worked within maybe, I think the longest one was maybe five to seven days, something like that. And by that time, the uh, local district all of a sudden figures out a way to (laughs) get money, yeah, to give fair raises. But I also think what we're seeing isn't just about money. And that's really important because in a time of increased teacher burnout, teachers are saying to districts, okay, you know, it's public. So we know like what your funding is. We know how much you're bringing in from taxes. We know how much you have to spend. So if that money doesn't exist to give us inflationary, you know, uh, cost of living adjustments, we're going to ask for other things. For example, we're going to ask for you know, greater p- parental leave, or we're going to ask for, mm-hmm. um, you know, more control over the curriculum, which is something that the current Andover uh, district, which is strong. Or we want you to raise the, the pay for the teaching assistants who mm. most often don't have a living wage. Like they it, you yeah. know, make like hourly wages that lead up to like 20,000 a year or something for, for people who are working with the most vulnerable kids. Oh, absolutely. Um, I have a question mm. about, you said, is it called work to rule or is this contract mm-hmm. hours? What were the biggest effects of that? And mm. can you go into like, what, what how, how did they realize what teachers are doing beyond mm-hmm. contract hours? So what was, what was affected the most by that? I think the number one thing is kind of um, the childcare aspect before and after school. So teachers were not showing up early. They're only showing up when the bell rings, when kids come in and they're not staying late. That's probably the bigger one. So kids can't stay after for extra help or be in a classroom or library supervised by a teacher, Um, you know, extracurricular activities that are not paid or volunteer positions, Um, grading and email. So there's no communication after school hours. Um, so that affects, you know, how long it takes you to grade a test or how long sure. it takes a parent to get a response. Um, although I will say the work to rule aspect, although it does impact parents in the community, it's more impactful on administrators because now they're scrambling for who's going to monitor bus duty, who's going to do cafeteria, you know, who's going to mm-hmm. be there before school as the kids start getting dropped off before the bell rings. And so um, it's a way, I think, to target administration first, parents second, whereas the mm-hmm. strike targets parents in the community first. In that is so of, okay. interesting because I would think, because I know the majority of the things that I was doing beyond contract hours was planning and grading. Mm-hmm. You ask any high school, you know, especially ELA teacher that's not using <laughs> like those essays are going to take forever. Like, yes. and, and, then I could imagine like the guilt 
like yeah. the complete guilt of of not doing that. But if you, mm-hmm. I guess, if you're thinking it's for a higher cause, it's for the better of everybody, then that essay not being graded isn't going to be the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, there is never kind of universal liking of that. So you think of somebody in their first, second, third year teaching, like to take away that extra time planning, like they need that to function during the yes. school day. Um, and I think you do, I mean, work to rule is kind of, um, a formal thing, but you know, if, it, if a second year teacher goes home and is actually working on lesson plans, you know, nobody's monitoring that or preventing right. that. Um, and so I think the work to rule aspect is more of a signifier, like, Hey, okay. we're ready to strike. Like this is the, this is the last step. You know, yeah. We're um, doing before. this. And yeah, exactly. And, and that of course is like. Uh, even more kind of precarious, especially for those new teachers and things like that, um, because now they're not in their classroom that throws off where the curriculum was. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, it, it's more like this kind of um, actually we saw it a little bit in the auto worker strike. So this auto worker strike, I think one one of the most brilliant parts of it was they didn't strike all the plants all at once they had a ratcheting up. So they said like, we're going to strike like these three plants. Then we're going to add like five more. Then Ford made good progress with their contract, even though we're not settled. So we're not going to strike Ford plants, but we're going to strike, you know, Stellantis and GM plants because they're Mm -hmm. being recalcitrant. And eventually that ratcheting up uh, got to a point where all three wanted to settle. And I think that's also what you see with the, uh, lead up to a strike is the ratcheting up of yeah um and and some of them go to like for example state mediation they'll bring in a department of labor mediator um but it, it's a series of steps not just mm-hmm. like hey let's go strike because we just want to yeah we're not showing up tomorrow yeah exactly yeah 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 so it, they're striking right now did you say for more over. control over curriculum and isn't it also for the teacher assistant pay or is it yes. just yeah, so um, this is actually something we're seeing in um, an increasing number of districts. So um, our state teachers, um, their locals, are affiliated with one or two of the two big unions. So the NEA, um, mm-hmm. the National Education Association, is uh, we have the Massachusetts Teachers Association, the MTA. It's actually the biggest union in the state. And then some of the districts, like Boston, the biggest one, is through the AFT, um, and and but they work together in uh, these kind of priorities. But one of the state priorities of the state union is to bump up this living wage for our assistant teachers. Mm-hmm. So more and more districts are buying onto that um, kind of as a priority. Because uh, a lot of times you have, I don't know if you also experience this too, but like we have different um, units. So unit A are the teachers, the guidance counselors, the mm-hmm. full-time employees. Unit B will be like your administrators, your department chairs. Unit C will be your assistants and like unit D, for example, will be secretaries and then cafeteria workers will be like mm-hmm. separate units. So we have unit A, the teachers, the guidance counselors standing up for a different unit, which is bargained separately, the, the teaching assistants. Mm-hmm. Ah. So these aren't actually happening in the same actual contracts, but these are agreements that they're getting um, as they bargain together in parallel. But I so in Andover, which is a suburb north of Boston. They're the latest ones. They went on strike um, Thursday. They voted to strike. They went on strike on Friday. They were up until I. what I saw was they they stopped bargaining at 1230 this morning, Sunday morning, wow. and um, they didn't settle. So they're coming back to the table. But um, they are, I think, going into their 10th month without a contract. They're bargaining on uh, cost of living increases, which is always the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And they're... Um, aiming for a substantial increase in their cost of living and also their teaching assistance pay raises. Um, but there are ancillary things like parental leave is a big one. Mm-hmm. And also right. parental leave in the way that it's treated, especially. So not just a medical leave for a biological birth mother, but if you yes. either adopt or you're you know, a father or you know, an adoptive parent or a foster parent, that you have time to bond with that child, not just you know, a, a biological mother physically recovering from a medical procedure. Yes, yes. That's kind of the new move that we're seeing in that kind of language as well. Um, and then curriculum decisions. They they want greater 
um, say in either the kinds of curriculum that the school district is adopting and kind of the freedom that teachers have to um, give input into that kind of thing. That will never happen in Florida, ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. not no, with no, Governor no. DeSantis. Um, well, I think... Yeah. In those cases, um, and it's funny because, you know, people see Massachusetts as like it's a very, very blue state. And it is. But there's kind of an underpinning in a lot of the suburban and more rural districts. Um, what we call offhand like this parental rights movement, which, you know, is not about all parents and is usually not about rights, um, kind of pushing to have a greater political say over the, the educational curriculum right. um, by a loud, small group of folks, I think, mm. is moving districts. I mean, we know school district leadership, central office is inherently conservative in terms of small C conservative. Like they don't like waves that, you know, they don't like to make. Mm controversies. They don't want to have people showing up at the school committee meeting yelling at them. And so <laughs> um, that, I think, drives a lot of what they do. And I think um, teachers have been feeling the effect of that, either with things about equity kind of pulled out of the curriculum or with more kind of um, uh, recently we've seen like a lot of STEM only kind of stuff, you know, at the mm. expense of the humanities or even science of reading shifting over from where it had oh, been yeah. with the Reader's Workshop. That's like, huge. Yes. Yeah. Teachers need planning time. They need uh, the ability to, you know, make those changes in their curriculum, not just here, use this, throw away your font to Simpanel and now use science <laughs> of reading because yeah. it's not that easy. It's not that easy. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So are they striking tomorrow or is it, it's, so if they don't settle uh, today, today. Then, then, yeah, they'll be on strike tomorrow. Um, they will have demonstrations. Um, one of the strongest things that happens is when parents turn out and parents and kids turn out with a little, you know, poster board signs that they make. Like we support our teachers. We support our teachers. They'll line up on the driveways of the school and that kind of thing. Uh, um, that's very impactful. And I'll give you a a great example of that, you know, back in February, a different district north of Boston, actually very near this one that's striking, called Woburn, um, they had a strike. They were a long time without a contract. They were also pushing for raises for their assistance and for cost of living increases. And the mayor, who was in his um, seventh term, had been there for a while. He kind of was the head of this machine in this local government. He really um, went hard after the teachers. He is actually one of the primary movers in this local, unlike many others, getting fined uh, in the tens of thousands of dollars and was talking about, you know, pursuing jailing leaders or, you know, going to the hundreds of thousands of dollars and that, or making the teachers work extra days in the summer, you know, to make up for this. Uh, and the district uh, community, the parent community really were on the teacher's side. They, the teachers were effective at communicating. We've been a very long time without a raise. We just went through this pandemic where we kept, you know, kids safe and we were doing all this digital learning, you know, on the fly. And, um, just on Tuesday, we had an election here and that mayor was voted out. He was going for his eighth term Good. and he was flipped out with, um, you know, there were only two uh candidates in the runoff he lost by about 1300 votes and when you think about the effect of teachers and how many parents there are across all the schools in the district you know 1300 votes is not a tremendous amount but you know uh it was enough to throw out this long-term mayor who uh had antagonized uh the teachers in front of the community and i think it's a good lesson you know that yeah. that that teaching strikes you know the union organization is a political organization and and once they harness kind of this union yeah. between parents and teachers it doesn't just go away when the contract is settled that political momentum is still there below the surface and they activated it during this election well that's awesome yeah 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 wow it has hmm. been so nice talking to you it hearing really your been. story yeah. and learning about things that i didn't really know about because it's kind of outside of my world of existence right so um it's been great yeah thanks for we, having me yeah i think we'd probably love to have you again so i would love to yeah absolutely and um this year particularly is going to be i think I, there will be more strikes, uh, I'm predicting okay. now. I don't know how many, but I know more towns will um, strike. And I, I think it's 
going to kind of spur a national movement. We have strikes in Portland, Oregon, Chicago a couple of years ago, like big districts are str- LA last wow. year. So yeah. Um, well, it's interesting is- too, because we have nothing like, you know, th- there's nothing we can do really. In Georgia. Yeah. yeah really. All right. So I'm going to ask, I should have asked this earlier, but you are, so you're back on the job search. Yes, I am. Yes. So yes. what kind of, what are you hoping to, to do next? You know, that's a really good question because um, I spent so long teaching where I, that was not even part of my vocabulary. Like, what what am I doing next would be like, oh, I'm teaching social studies again next year. Like, what do you think <laughs> I'm doing? And so, right, yeah, right. yeah, having worked in this ed tech, I think one of the things I did realize is, of course, in ed tech, it's more tech than ed. And I, I missed the, I mean, there's a lot of product management. There's a lot of kind of uh, communications, marketing, but I really missed kind of the, um, social studies subject stuff that I taught. Mm-hmm. And I also missed kind of working with teachers, advocating for teachers um, as part of my union role. And so I'm looking for things like, um, you know, opportunities where I can be an advocate for teachers, for public education, where I can um, talk about social studies. Like I, I have applied for jobs, for example, at the Museum of Fine Arts in the education nice. department. Um, and I've applied, you know, um, in kind of curriculum writing, but um, I don't know if that's kind of the permanent thing I want to do. So right, I'm open to opportunities. I, and the other thing is, and being a teacher who's left teaching, you know, like there's always so much more to the education ed- ecosystem that's available that you don't even know about. Like you don't know what you don't know that's out there. So that's right. true. I mean, there is, that's why when we tell teachers, like, you know, find something else out there. Yeah. Um, But you seem just, you, you know, you've got so much experience and you've got the right ideas in mind, well-spoken, and it's been fabulous talking to you. I feel like you should you. run for office. I think so, too. <laughs> Thank you. I, <laughs> that is funny that you say that because a, a childhood friend of mine just got elected state rep of my parents' neighborhood. And talking to him, I kind of was like, maybe that oh, could be something. I but, can see yeah. it. <laughs> I can, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I... um. I will take you saying that as a sign from the universe. And- there you yeah. go. Wow. <laughs> well, you'll definitely have to come back and keep us posted now, mm, but yes. I definitely have loved our time today. And Me too. Thank you so yeah, much. You're welcome. Great. Yeah. Good luck great. to you. And we'll def- Thank you. definitely keep up with your, your success and progress. Thank you. By the way, in Georgia, like, you should look back at what West Virginia did because they are not a union-friendly state in that way. And they made some real progress a few years ago with the right and I will and I, I think what you said was that it's politically driven we are so yep. you know we it's like we're ingrained as teachers not to talk about politics and yes. not to get into that and I know mm-hmm. on the podcast the really the only thing we've done is talk have rant us about DeSantis like we yeah, are we obviously do bash we do DeSantis. and it's like what Care. we've kept out of the whole like all the things mm-hmm. um, because I'm still working in the school and yep. people I've, I've had people listen to see if I've said anything just because they're at buttholes um, <laughs> and, and they don't have anything better to do. But I think that's real interesting to get into that, um, the realm of this is political. This is something that you can't just sit back and let things happen to you. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. So I, I, and like, especially, hit me. I mean, yeah. the political stuff about like curriculum and DeSantis being like an asshole like that yeah. is um, one thing. But I think what happened in West Virginia, it was much more targeted in terms of like, teacher pay, like let's, like they were good about um, advocating um, for the community. Look at all the other jobs our teachers have to do just to be above the poverty line. Like, you know, teachers are are working, you know, at the movie theater or like they're working at yes. Starbucks in order to make enough money to support their own kids um, while they are helping and supporting your kids. So it was mm-hmm. much more targeted on the teaching uh, profession okay. and the compensation and the money and, and kind of, um, yeah, the, the kind of things that are life household issues that everybody can relate to. Yeah. And it was we'll very effective. Look at that. Yeah. That's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. They actually did a, um, a, a sit in at the state house, which was one of the mm-hmm. most effective things um, that they did because it really got the local politicians involved when they can show, Hey, our parents are organized in your district and they're going to be watching like this town up in Woburn, you know, next election where, where you stand with our supporting mm-hmm. our community and supporting our teachers. Isn't That'd that be great to have that kind of parent support. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that's um, the thing though. Don't let the don't let the loudmouths because you know, right, like there's right. there's there's a bunch of loudmouths and they're used to getting all the attention and they're primed from like whatever they watch or whatever internet they follow. And then you have some people who are, you know, boosters, they're right there with like the orange slices on field day and like they're super <laughs> excited to be involved. And then there's this vast middle that is like, I send my kids to school, they're generally doing well. I don't really hear like a lot, you know, for my teenager, but like it seems like everything's going. If you can mobilize even a fraction of that middle, you will have an overwhelming majority of that's a really good activated th- people. That's yeah, right. yeah, that's great. Yeah. Ah, well, thank you. We hope you have a great day. Yeah, and you too. Absolutely. I'm going to go look up the flower shop on Instagram. And what is and the flower follow. shop? And what is say it again? And yeah, the you? centerpiece, the centerpiece, centerpiece flower shop in Boston. And where can we find you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best place. I, I'm okay. off X. Um, I mean, I, I have an account, but I don't use it anymore. And um, yeah, so the best place is LinkedIn. I'm Stephen Anthony Guerrero. Um, you can find me there. And, and that's where I post most of my kind of education takes. I just found you guys on Central Peace Flower Shop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, it's all him. He does all the uh, artistry and everything. I, I do some of the behind the scenes kind of stuff. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, it's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Have, a great, you too. have yeah. a great afternoon. You too. Yes. Absolutely. Thank Take you. it easy. Bye. 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 <laughs>